Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel in the New Books Network, where we talk with philosophers about their ideas as expressed in their newly published books. I'm Carrie Figdor, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese. Today's interview is with Kristen Andrews, Associate Professor of Philosophy at York University in Toronto. Her book, Can Apes Read Minds?, has just been published by the MIT Press. The ability to figure out the mental lives of others, what they want, what they believe, what they know, what they feel, is basic to our relationships. Sherlock Holmes exemplified this ability by accurately simulating the thought processes of suspects in order to solve mysterious crimes. But folk psychology is not restricted to genius detectives. We all use it to predict what a friend will feel when we cancel a date, to explain why a child in a playground is crying, to deceive someone else by saying less than the whole story. Its very ubiquity explains why it is called folk psychology. But how, in fact, does folk psychology work? On standard views in philosophy and psychology, folk psychology just is the practice of ascribing or attributing beliefs and desires to people for explaining and predicting their behavior. A folk psychologist is someone who has this theory of mind. In her new book, Andrews argues that the standard view is far too narrow a construal of what's going on. It leaves out a wide variety of other mechanisms we use to understand the mental lives of others, and a wide variety of other reasons we have for engaging in this social competence. Moreover, what's necessary to be a folk psychologist is not a sophisticated metacognitive ability for ascribing beliefs, but instead an ability to sort the world into agents and non-agents, an ability that greatly expands the class of creatures that can be counted as folk psychologists. Andrews draws on empirical work in psychology and ethology, including her own fieldwork, observing wild primates, to critique the standard view and ground her alternative pluralistic folk psychology. Let's turn to the interview. I'm here with Kristen Andrews of York University. Uh, Kristen, are you there? I am. Hi, Carrie. Hi. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thanks. Thanks so much for the invitation to talk about the book. Yes, the book. Mm-hmm. Do Apes Read Minds? Um, I'm really excited about this book because it's, it's a very different sort of approach to the whole issue of, of mind reading, which is, which is very much in the air these days in psychology and neuroscience. Um, and, you know, you, you give a, a basically an empirically grounded indictment of, of how folk psychology is, is usually understood in philosophy and in psychology, um, and as a result in neuroscience. Um, and on your view, it's, it's sort of all wrongheaded in, in, in both, uh, the methods that we use to mind read and the reasons for which we mind read. 
Um, so before we get into the details of your uh, indictment and then your alternative account, um, maybe you can give us a little bit of background about your interests in uh, philosophy and, and animal behavior um, and how you came to write this book, which, which combines both of these interests. Sure. Um, I will. Thanks. I want to clarify something first, and that is that it's not, uh, um, the book isn't intended to be an indictment of the approach to mind reading per se, because I understand mind reading narrowly as the attribution of the propositional attitudes. What it's an indictment of is the subtitle of the book, Toward a New Folk Psychology. I think that what's been very problematic in the last 30 years in philosophy is a very narrow and overly intellectualist view of what's going on when we are engaged in our folk psychological practices of predicting behavior, explaining behavior, evaluating people, understanding people, and so on. And so my critique primarily is that Folk psychology is not to be understood as mind reading. Right? Folk psychology is not limited to the attribution of beliefs and desires, even though this is the um, point that's been emphasized in the literature. So I'm, I'm okay with mind reading and uh, focusing on mind reading and asking questions about mind reading. What I'm not okay about is assuming that you know, the, the majority of the ways we engage interpersonally involves mind reading. So it has a bit of a narrower view in, um, in human social cognition and in animal cognition too, right? So, so your question was about how I got interested in writing this and what sort of, um, experiences I had with animals that made me think that, that maybe there was a problem with this focus on attribution of propositional attitudes or mind reading as the primary way we understand others. And I guess you, you might trace some of that back to the work I was doing before I even started my graduate studies um, at the Koala Basin Marine Mammal Laboratory. That's Lou Herman's laboratory where he was studying the cognitive capacities of four bottlenose dolphins. And I was just a lowly intern there, but uh, working with uh, with Adam Pack, who was studying um, a number of things, serial memory and other people studying um, analogical reasoning in dolphins. And my main job as a lowly intern was to keep Phoenix calm when Akea Kamai, who was the star of the show, um, was being tested because Phoenix got very grumpy and... She didn't like very many people, but Phoenix liked me. And so I could hang out with Phoenix and keep her calm while the others tested the other dolphins. Um, and so I realized then that there's, there's a lot going on in these dolphins um, as far as their relationships they're having with other human beings, the relationships they have with one another, and that their social cognition is, is quite sophisticated, whether or not they have a theory of mind or can mind read. So that might be an early influence, but I was always interested in animals even before that. <laughs> Right, and you later on you also went to uh, Indonesia or Borneo for uh, right. or orangutans, right? That's right. So Indonesian Borneo and East Kalimantan. My colleague Anne Russin invited me to her research site, so I spent two summers out there with um, rehabilitant orangutans and um, was really impressed with what I saw going on in this kind of quasi-natural setting, the orangutans engaged in pantomime communication. So Ann and I have a paper on pantomime communication, two papers on pantomime communication and orangutans, too. That's so how, the, how does the, the philosophy came in then, later? The, 
the philosophy of folk psychology? Uh, no, just going from dolphins to to uh, to philosophy. Oh, well, so I first wanted to go out and talk to the dolphins and find out what the meaning of life was when I was 20. <laughs> so that was the beginning, but it really turned into a, a much deeper interest in, um, in methodology. So, so I'm a philosopher of science, I think, primarily, a philosopher of psychology, as opposed to a philosopher of mind and interested in like metaphysical questions. So it's a methodology of how to study these things. We've got the other mind problem going on, which is um, augmented by the fact that we can't communicate linguistically with these animals. We have to find other means of communicating. If, you know, and then we have to figure out whether we are communicating or whether we just think we're communicating. So the nature of communication comes in there, too. There are a lot of interrelated issues, for sure, in these studies. How to go about studying um, these species that we can't speak to, the assumptions, the starting assumptions that we make, how they're different when we're studying non-linguistic human infants and adult um, non-human animals. Um, you know, there's been a lot of sort of comparison over the past several years between children, human children with autism and great apes, which I find quite problematic because there are, you know, Great apes are not autistic humans, There's and great apes are not human infants either. So there are these kind of superficial similarities, but a lot of uh, differences as well. So so you, um, um, I mean, as you, in a sense, implicitly already said, the title, Do Apes Read Minds?, um, uh, your answer to the question is is no, um, but it's not a straightforward no um, because you interpret the question in a, in a particular way. Um, so maybe you could uh, start us off with the with getting into the details of the book uh, by explaining how you interpret you know apes and then mind reading. Yeah, sure. Um, so the question, do apes read minds? The answer isn't no, but the answer is some of them sometimes do for uh-huh. sure. And um, the ones that we know sometimes do for sure are the human apes, right? Because the ape family includes humans, humans, chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, orangutans, and gibbons. Though, frankly, I'm only focusing on great apes in this book, so the poor gibbons get left out. But a title... The title wouldn't have been as catchy if it was, Do Great Apes Read Minds? (laughs) Um, So, yeah, and as far as the non-human great apes, whether they read minds or not, I think that that's an open question. And again, by reading minds, I mean attributing propositional attitudes, having a theory of mind um, as, you know, traditionally understood in the false belief task as attributing beliefs and desires. It's an open question because, as I argue in the book, the wrong sorts of studies have been done. So here again, you get the methodological implications of this um, of this critique of the standard folk psychological framework as um, being our understanding of other minds being primarily the attribution of beliefs and desires. Okay, so um, this uh, so you you kind of identify mind folk psychology as traditionally or, or standard folk psychology with this mind reading and mind reading in turn with uh, ascribing beliefs and desires or, or propositional attitudes. Um, and um, as you just mentioned, um, this close association or, or interpretation of what it is to be a folk psychologist is to be somebody who reads minds, which is just to be somebody who 
ascribes beliefs and desires um, to in order to predict and explain. Um, th this has led to a, a very widely known and robust research program in, uh, in develop developmental psychology um, to, you know, look at what at what age children are able to read minds um, when they have the concept of belief and and. And this is all measured by the so-called uh, false belief task, which you just mentioned. Um, and then, of course, you know, we see can chimps, you know, ascribe false beliefs and so forth. Um, and that's how most people uh, interpret the question, you know, do apes read minds? You know, it's, it's a question of are they able to, say, pass the false belief task is one way of measuring, you know, it, you know, yes, if they do, then they then the answer is yes. Yeah. Um, so, um Maybe you could explain uh, exactly, you know, how the research program gets based in what you call standard folk psychology, mm -hmm. um, and um, why why this view is misguided, or at okay. least too narrow. Okay. Well, I can tell you a little story to begin with, um, and and the story starts with David Premack, who, along with Guy Woodruff, coined the term theory of mind in his 1978 paper, Does a Chimpanzee Have a Theory of Mind? Right. So the whole question started out with chimpanzees. But David Premack did his graduate work at the University of Minnesota, which is the same place I did my graduate work, but I did mine in the 90s, and Premack did his in, I think it was the 50s. Um, and at that time at Minnesota, the, the philosophy and the psychology departments were really closely united. And logical positivists were, um, were reigning in philosophy and behaviorism was reigning in psychology. And at Minnesota was, among others, Wilfred Sellers and Paul Meal, who actually told me some of these stories when I was at Minnesota about David Premack. And Premack was really interested in philosophy and they were really engaged. Um, the philosophy and psychology were really engaged with one another. And so I think it's not too surprising that David Premack gets this idea, what, several years, 20 years later or whatever, that um, we can draw upon Seller's idea from the myth of the given, right? This, this myth that there was someday in our, um, our Rylian ancestors, where nobody was able to mind read, no one had a theory of mind, no one knew that others had beliefs and desires. There was this genius Jones that had the insight that others have reasons for their actions, even when they don't verbalize those reasons, that there's kind of an inner speech. And that inner speech is what was postulated by the genius Jones to be what we call beliefs um, and desires. And so Premack, I think, really drew upon Seller's idea when he asked whether there are any chimpanzees who basically had the same insight as Jones. Is there a genius Jones in the chimpanzee world? Mm -hmm. um, but interestingly, this was combined. So in a, in a sense, this is a beautiful story, right? You've got philosophy and psychology closely interacting and philosophical work influencing empirical research. It's beautiful. I love it. Um, I'm just a little bit worried about how it took off and how it started and the emphasis on, um, on, on prediction that grew out of not Sellers, because Sellers was quite interested in explanation, but I think what grew out of um, a development that happened in the intervening 20 years when Nicholas Humphrey's version of the social intelligence hypothesis um, when Humphrey's introduced this notion, right? So this is the notion that um, that 
humans are have a sophisticated social cognition and um, that social cognition developed in order for us to win out in this kind of Machiavellian world and deceive one another. And in order to deceive someone else and win out and win the sex, win the uh, food, win the um, territory and so on and so forth, it was extremely helpful to attribute beliefs and desires to an individual and then try to change their beliefs so that they had false beliefs. So they would then lose out in these kind of competitions. Um, and so I see the, this idea of the social intelligence hypothesis emphasizing the predictive ability of, folk of traditional folk psychology, of mind reading, of belief, desire, attribution. And so when Premack and Woodruff said, okay, we're going to look and see if the chimpanzee Sarah can make predictions about what the individual is going to do next in this series of slides, they were thinking about folk psychology in terms of having this great predictive power. But then it got even more interesting because in response to um, that BBS article that Premack and Woodruff wrote, um, there was commentary by a number of people, including importantly, Dennett, Bennett, and Harmon all three of whom independently suggested this idea that it's the false belief that you really want to get at. And that if you were to do something like, it was Dennett, I think, who said, listen, if you introduce something like a Punch and Judy show into, um, into the experimental setup so that um, the individual thinks that Judy's in the box, even though she's not really in the box, and you predict what the individual is going to do. You know, punch is very mean, so he's going to push the box off the cliff and, uh, and kill Judy. Uh, but you're going to make this prediction based on Punch's false belief. This insight is what led to the focus on false belief, I think, um, these commentaries. And then that was subsequently developed by Wimmer and Perner in their false belief task that they, that they used with young human children. And then so for the longest time, the interest, the emphasis was in the, in psychology was on humans. And for a long time, the assumption was passing the false belief test is evidence that there exists the concept of belief in among human children. Now, so I also find this very interesting because nobody kind of had anything at stake uh, in this discussion at this point. So nobody was there to say, hey, here's some alternative explanations for why children are passing the false belief tests around four and failing them earlier. So people were largely happy with saying, yeah, this is a good test for mind reading in children. It wasn't until much more recently, so in the last 10 years, when people started testing um, mind reading in human infants. Renee Byer-Jean and colleagues, Victoria Southgate, so on. And doing, of course, nonverbal tests with human infants as young as, I think, eight months. And finding evidence that children anticipate what someone's going to do in a false belief situation based on looking time um, paradigms or violation of expectation paradigms. And it wasn't until these studies came out that people really started saying, hey, wait, we need an alternative explanation. Just as in the um, non-human animal, in the chimpanzee theory of mind research program that kind of developed um, at the, in, in the 90s, um, people, critics said, hey, there are alternative explanations for anything, for any study that someone said, this is evidence of mind reading in apes. Someone said, hey, but here's an alternative explanation. So in the infant studies, Perner and Ruffman 
I think develop one of the a very strong criticism of the the interpretation of the infant theory of mind quote unquote studies as not indicating theory of mind um, they arguing along the lines that I've been arguing for a long time about four year olds passing false belief tests. It's not evidence that there's a concept of belief in in infants or, as I would say, in four-year-old children either, that they understand belief. Behavioral rules can account for the performance in all of these tests. Um, So, for example, in the straightforward false belief moved object task that four-year-olds pass, an inductive generalization over past behavior can account for performance of the four-year-olds. A four-year-old can can have come to grasp the knowledge that people generally look for objects where they left them, thus leading them to make this change, that um, this change in prediction that the Sally will go and look for her chocolate in the basket where she left it, not in the cupboard where it was subsequently moved. So it's an alternative explanation for children's success. And the reason why I think that this interpretation of what's going on is plausible is comes from other studies that have been done on children and their understanding of mental states. So um, Ian Apperley and Elizabeth Robinson did a number of studies finding that kids don't understand the opacity of mental states until mid-childhood. And um, Perner and Wimmer themselves did a study that um, showed that kids can't correctly solve second-order belief reasoning tasks, right, even when they can pass the false belief test. So the, the understanding of, of belief and the conceptual change right, associated with the understanding of this notion of belief is something that is developing in later childhood and into adolescence. It's not something that they have at four years old. And I think it's misleading to say, yes, Four years old, passing the false belief test, then boom, the kids got a, um, a, a robust mind reading ability. They might have a developing one, uh, but it's, I think, extremely misleading to think they have a concept of belief at that point. That's anything like the concept of belief that we're, t- we're using when we're talking about mind reading. By we, I mean philosophers. <laughs> so if... if uh, answer, sorry, Carrie. No, go ahead. No, yeah, sorry, I'm done, but sorry for the for rambling on. Um, no, I mean, I was that was a pretty interesting uh, quick history of of the whole false belief um, task and where it's going. But it, it's interesting that um, to put to kind of step back from a broader view, it it, it's, it sounds like um, you know a lot of these uh, a lot of these tests, you know, are. Uh, uh, they're interpreted in a very, you know, very highly cognitive way, you mm-hmm. might say, rather than a, a behavioristic or associationistic way. And a lot of the uh, results, the findings, uh, don't require, in effect, they don't require us to think about others as having minds at all. So, um, no, this is where I would disagree. Okay, good. I think that, that Perfect. The, there's a huge difference between understanding someone as having beliefs and desires yeah. and understanding someone as having a personality, as having emotional states, as having moods, as having um, you know certain kinds of tendencies, um, well, as this- having perceptual states as well, right? So these are distinctions that are being made by animal cognition researchers. Do chimpanzees have a theory of mind or do they just have a theory of perception? 
perception? Can they understand what others can and can't see as opposed to what they believe? Can they understand what others' goals are as opposed to what they believe? Right? So belief is this, is this <laughs> very sophisticated concept, but having a goal can be defined not in terms of, you know, a, a, a belief that can be true or false, but as um, a, an achievement that can be something that can be achieved or not achieved, but that there is a motivational factor within the individual for fulfilling that goal. So there's all kinds of rich mentality that can be attributed without having a theory of mind. And this is one of the reasons I think that the, the um, comparison with autistic children and chimpanzees is really misleading because, you know, some children with autism treat humans like stones, you know, the, some of the early stories were of children just walking, an autistic child walking over humans on a beach, lying on a beach as if they were rocks. And this is not at all what's going on in other animals. Other animals are quite good at um, a lot of these judgments about emotional, uh, emotional states of others. So, for example... Franz de Waal has done beautiful work, I think, in documenting some of that in the um, um, the consolation behavior that he observes in chimpanzees. When you have a chimpanzee who loses a fight, another chimpanzee you come and hug it, and so you know, hug her and make her feel better. So that so there are all kinds of rich sort of mentalistic understanding that could be going on in an organism that doesn't have a theory of mind. Well, this is, I mean, I it sort of gets towards the end of the book. You get into uh, uh, the idea of, of agency as a, as a central, central concept of basic and a basic uh, uh, basic to our abilities to engage in in your version of, of so folk psychology, which is not merely mind reading. Um, so l let me just you know sort of uh, since this is a very basic point, um, I, I kind of want to get to it right where since we're at it right now is is just this idea that um, having a mind is interpreted in terms of beliefs, desires, mental states, and so forth. And you think, um, I mean, as I understand, you think this, this whole idea of thinking about cognition in terms of propositional attitudes um, is itself uh, completely misleading, misconstrues the actual phenomena, um, that, that, that having a mind um, or having cognition, have, having something going on in between Right behavior, um, you know, stimulus behavior laws um, is a much richer thing than just having particular mental states, and you kind of label that as you know some sort of view of agency. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on what else is going on in cognition, and then how this? Uh, plays a role on your view in the way we ought to understand folk psychology. Okay. So my focus is limited on to social cognition, right? And I have no um, beef about, you know, representational views of the mind or about the role of propositional attitudes in problem solving or any other sort of cognitive um, operations, engagements. What I'm f merely focused on is the primacy of 
of attributing propositional attitudes in order to understand others, right? So this is perfectly consistent with an individual's behavior being um, driven by, you know, a representational theory of mind when the representations are understood as propositional attitudes. Um, there, so, you know, I, I need to make that distinction, first okay. of all. Right. It's, it's about mind reading and how, um, and, so, and social cognition um, primarily. So the question then is, what so yeah. how, about, how about you let me, um, I'll tell you what my view is about what's going on when we're engaged in social cognition. Okay. How about that? Yeah. So you, so you, everybody understands what, what I actually want to argue. So I'm not at all arguing that we don't attribute beliefs and desires in order to predict behavior. Right. Certainly, you know, we do do that. Um, but what I am arguing is that we don't do it nearly as often as, um, as people think that we do. So the, so for example, if I'm uh, meeting you at the Amsterdam train station and we just said, okay, let's meet up at the Amsterdam train station, but we didn't pick a place to meet in there. When I go in there and I see the big sign that says meeting point, I look up and I say, oh, Carrie's going to see that. And I bet she's going to think that's a good place to meet. And so I'm going to go meet her there and you'll probably be there and it'll work out fabulously. Right. right. So there's no question that that happens. Um, but we are predicting behavior constantly all the time. When we walk down the street, we're predicting how people are going to, um, you know, step to the side so we don't run into them. When we're driving cars, we predict people are going to stop at red lights. When we, um, you know, cross the street, when we see a dangerous looking person, we're making a prediction about what that person might do. And when we go to the classroom, we're making predictions about what our students are going to do, that they're going to show up, right? So we're coordinating our behavior constantly with other people in this quotidian, kind of uninteresting way. And, you know, so Fodor thinks that we do this by attributing beliefs and desires. You know, it's a story that um, that's what you do when you pick someone up at the airport at the right time. You're thinking about what they believe and what they desire. And... I think that there are a lot of reasons to think that that's not right. And first of all, there are a number of different ways in which we um, predict behavior, a number of different methods in addition to um, predicting through the attribution of beliefs and desires. We predict through the self. And this is, I, I draw upon largely upon data experiments in social psychology. So there's a lot of really rich work in social psychology about how we anticipate what others are going to do. Um, so we predict from self, we predict that others are going to be more like us than different from us generally. Um, so if I really like sushi, I, and I don't really have any other evidence about, you know, your likes or dislikes, I might say, oh, let's go have sushi. I'm sure Carrie will like sushi. I like sushi. Who doesn't like sushi, right? Mm -hmm. um, we predict from the situation when there's a bear on the path and the bear is charging you down, I predict that Carrie's going to scream and run away, right? Because not, I don't know what she believes. I don't know what you believe, Carrie, but I do know that that's a scary situation. So you're going to get the hell out of there. Um, we predict from stereotypes, stereotypes about what women do and what, um, uh, you know, what men do, what academics do, what plumbers do, what police officers do, what, um, you know, Japanese people do. So we, we use stereotypes and there's a lot of, you know, concern about the use of incorrect stereotypes in our society. Why? Because we use them because they're extremely, um, 
an extremely important part of our social cognition. We just want to try to make sure they're accurate so we're not going to <laughs> commit any sort of moral um, uh, violations. And we predict it via personality traits. Oh, yeah, Sue's helpful. So I'm going to ask Sue to help me run the conference because I know she'll be really reliable and so on and so forth. And we predict based on people's moods. Oh, he's in a bad mood. And so let's not, you know, ask him, let's not tell him about this problem right now because he's just going to get irritated or um, and people's emotions. Oh, she's really happy right now or she's having a... Yeah, she's really excited that she just got this job, and so let's, um, you know, whatever. I predict that she's going to go out and celebrate tonight. What's her belief and desire? I don't know exactly what her belief and desire is, but I know she's happy, and that when she's happy, she goes out and celebrates. So we make predictions using, and this is this is not a limited list. This is just a whole bunch of different ways in which we predict behavior. Social psychologists have done a lot of research on this, and so the question is. Um, to what extent do we rely on belief and desire attribution? And to what extent do we rely on some of these other methods of prediction that don't reduce to belief and desire attribution? Well, let me, let me just uh, bring up a, 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 a fairly obvious objection at this point, which, which you do uh, address. Um, uh, so to, I guess it's clearest in the example that you gave with, with me, you know, running wildly from the bear. Um, which is something I would I would never do. Oh, no. <laughs> um, okay, so I see the bear, and I I you know you predict I'll run and scream, and and uh, on your view, or at least as you just expressed it, you know I don't run because I have certain beliefs and desires, but because you know it's a scary situation. So it's it's a prediction. So what you would call a, a prediction from from the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but the objection would go, well, you know, certainly I have to have certain beliefs about about what the situation is, um, about what bears are, and 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 why, you know, why this is a scary situation. I certainly have to have desires about, you know, survival and the, the value of life, or at least of my life, um, and so on. And you know, so the the basic objection is all of these cases where you have, you know, a script. Uh, sorry. Um, predictions from self, situation, personality traits, um, uh, moods, and so forth. Um, uh, these uh, these all either contain implicitly. I mean, there's two different ways in which beliefs and desires could be could actually be involved. First of all, the the predictions, if fleshed out, would actually include beliefs and desires and depend essentially on them. Um, or also that that trying to understand the nature of self or or traits right um, uh, involves or depends on uh, on beliefs and desires right that that those are sort of fundamental to having these other things um, so how how do you respond to to this this objection that that beliefs and desires are actually present doing essential work in all of these cases where there is apparently no role for belief and desire. Right. So absolutely, you've got beliefs and desires about the bear, about what to do during bear attacks, about, and you have desires about survival, and all of these fit into a very rich web of beliefs and desires because you're a very smart person. (laughs) You have a lot of knowledge, and that's all connected. Now, if I, if it, say... 
your life depended on me making a right, a correct prediction about what you were going to do because, well, I don't want to get into details, <laughs> but let's say I had to make a prediction in order to save your life. Thank God I don't have to go through all your beliefs and desires in order to do that. How much processing work would that be? Instead, I can just say, situation, bear, she's going to run. Or maybe that's not what people do when they see bears. Maybe that's a bad example. So stop at the red light. It, your life does depend on me predicting what you're going to do when you're stopping at red lights if I'm driving in another car, right? Yeah. Um, but I don't have to think about the other driver's desire to stay alive or anything else. I don't have to think about them as minded beings at all. I think about them as following the rules of society. And that's sufficient for making the prediction. Does it mean they don't have a bunch of beliefs and desires? Of course not. I never deny that. They have them. But luckily for us, we don't need to think about them all the time. We've got all of these other methods for predicting behavior. Now, if I want to explain your behavior, I might then have to talk about your beliefs and desires. Um, I could talk about your personality traits or your or or something else as well if that sufficed as an explanation in this situation. But in order to predict your behavior, I don't need to think about your beliefs and desires. Um, okay, so yeah, a lot of a lot of our every everyday predictions are you know devoid of details that that really aren't necessary. You know you know sort of on a very broadly construed ceteris paribus basis. Um, uh, but but someone might uh, might respond. Uh, that's that's all very well and true. You know, as a matter of fact, that's that's actually you know how many predictions in everyday life go. But when we're talking about a you know a science of psychology, you know, scientific cognition, mm -hmm. um, what we want is an understanding of the mechanisms um, and elements that are involved um, that aren't just a matter of you know how we kind of give rough and ready predictions every day, but actually how it works. Um, yep, that's right. That's another project. Okay. That's a very important project, That's, but it's not the project I'm engaged in. So I, my explanandum uh -huh. is, is folk psychology, right? I'm trying to figure out what is in fact going on when we engage in folk psychological practices. Okay, which and is just what everyday is prediction, explanation, and other stuff. Yeah, how we predict, explain, justify, understand, coordinate, etc., behavior with others. Okay, what are what are? Can maybe you can elaborate also on some of the other things because we we've been talking so far about uh, on the uh, the explanation side, you know, the beliefs and desires, and that's we also use you know self and traits and moods and things like that. Um, how about on the on the other side of it, what what we're explaining, what we're doing? I should say more 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 accurately, um, what we're doing besides predicting and explaining on your view in folk psychology? Well, I, I don't have an exhaustive list here either. And I really do focus in the book on prediction and explanation. There are three chapters on predicting behavior and three chapters on explaining behavior. And I do, you know, also say I'm not think, I don't think that folk psychology is limited to these practices, but these practices have been very important in the literature. And, but I just think that their importance has been, um, flip-flopped from how important they actually are when it comes to mind reading or attributing propositional attitudes. Uh -huh. So whereas we don't need to attribute beliefs and desires for our quotidian predictions, for the most part, 
um, we may more, much more often need to refer to them in order to explain behavior. Okay. Um, another way to, uh, to get at your view is to compare it with some of the alternatives besides, um, besides standard folk psychology. Um, you also, uh, mention, uh, the model-based approach of uh, Peter Godfrey Smith and, and Heidi Meibaum. Um, mm-hmm. And then also, which we haven't talked about at all, um, uh, so-called theory theory and simulation theory. And we haven't, we haven't mentioned at all how, how, how that debate mm-hmm. um, enters into and um, uh, is, and, and your view is, in a sense, a response in part to, to that particular debate. Um, So maybe you could contrast um, your critique of folk psychology and your your pluralistic view um, with the uh, with Godfrey Smith's view or or Maibaum's view um, and then and then how the theory theory and simulation theory debate um, uh, is is related to your critique. Right. So the the theory theory and the simulation theory um, approaches to studying or explaining what's going on when we're engaged in folk psychology. I think both of them are problematic when because they assume this kind of monolithic, um, one-size-fits-all approach to folk psychology. We either use these mechanisms, this mechanism, and this is the little flowchart of how it works, or we use this mechanism, this is a little flowchart of how that works. And when I'm talking about simulation theory, uh, I'm not so um, um, much talking about Robert Gordon's version because I think it's a bit more. Um, it's certainly, it's it's um, more consistent with the sort of data that I'm I'm looking at. But Alvin Goldman's view of simulation theory, and even his more recent views, where he's got this you know, two two um, different level of simulation, one that involves a lot more theory than the other, but you might say that the main problem with those theories is that they've the accounts like Nichols and Stitch's account of folk psychology from a theory theory view and Goldman's um, simulation theory views is that they focus on prediction. And then they assume that the other folk psychological practices, and I'll just limit myself to explanation because that's really what I'm talking about in the book, work the same way. And I think that prediction and explanation are fundamentally different sorts of practices. You know, and I give a diagnosis for why I, uh, I think that this, um, this view has come to be, um, that prediction, that explanation is backwards prediction, as, as some people put it. Right. And this comes from, I think it comes from, um, from Hempel's deductive nomological account of scientific explanation, where you do see very much that an explanation is the ability to predict with a covering law and initial conditions. And, and if you can predict, then you can explain. But of course, right, in all the critiques of Hempel, we saw that that's not always true. And we know in, in social um, situations that's true as well. You know, like I said, I can predict that you're going to stop the red light, but I don't know what you believe. I don't know if you're you're thinking I'm going to stop the red light because I hope that Kristen will run into me, rear end me, and you know, <laughs> smash my car, and then I'll buy a new one with my insurance money. All right? I I don't know, but I don't need to know. So um, 
so the, the traditional discussion, I think, has been problematic in that way. What I really like about um, Godfrey Smith's model view is that it is much more pluralistic as well. So it does allow for the different sorts of practices and different sorts of information um, of uh, about individuals. I think at least it can be expanded to allow for the different sorts of information about in- individuals in addition to beliefs and desires. Um to be integrated into the model view. And he's, Godfrey Smith is kind of, and, and Maybaum too, are kind of developing, I don't know if this is quite true, but uh, other insights from the um, literature and scientific explanation that my graduate advisor at Minnesota, Ron Geary, had that scientific explanation is model manipulation. And so we build the model and we manipulate the model. And if the um, model comes up with good predictions, then the model itself serves as an explanation. So it doesn't need to be this linguistic um, entity set of sentences or anything like that. So we might be able to understand others if we're able to build up a model of individuals and build up models of types of individuals as well and use you know, multiple models when, um, um, you know, engaging with, with other people, especially when we don't know them very well. If we know someone quite well, we probably just use the model. We might just use a model of that individual. So I say, what I, what I'm, what I say is that this kind of, there's a, a development of Godfrey Smith's account of folk psychology that's consistent with everything, with all of the scientific data that I've presented so far from developmental psychology, social psychology, and animal cognition. So finally, we've got a view that could be consistent with, with that literature, with what we know. And I think that it can be consistent in a way that the traditional approaches of theory, theory, and simulation theory that we see from Nichols and Stitch and, and on the one hand and Goldman on the other can't possibly be made to be compatible with. So could you, um, uh, towards the end of the book, um, you, you sort of state your, the principles of, of, your pluralistic folk psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, could you could you say what what they are? Sure. So I'll contrast it with um, with standard folk psychology, which is um, first of all, I think, importantly, the ability to be a successful predictor, explainer, interpreter of behavior. Right. So this is where I think that that the standard approaches of folk psychology are right. We've got to, when when we're talking about what folk psychology is, in order for us to have a common ground, right, we're talking about someone who can predict and explain and interpret behavior, who who has social cognitive abilities. But I think that folk psychology isn't just, you know, a, a kind of mechanism, but that it's a social competence. And the social competence is going to be subsumed by a number of different cognitive mechanisms. And those are the cognitive mechanisms that allow us to do things like identify behavior as behavior, um, as opposed to seeing it as movement, or predicting behavior, explaining behavior, justifying behavior, coordinating behavior, which is something Adam Morton has long emphasized that we should be thinking about when we're thinking about folk psychology. Mm-hmm. Right? So I'm sympathetic to his work for sure, too. Um, and... 
I think that the folk, I think that there's evidence, there's, there's empirical evidence that the folk take intentional behavior as being caused not just by beliefs and desires, but they see intentional behavior as being caused by moods and personality traits and dispositions, enabling conditions. Um, this is again work that Bertram Mollet has done to a certain extent where he's, he has a pluralistic account. He's a social psychologist who's done some awesome work on the um, explanations people give for, for behavior. And he also sees that there's quite a diversity in the kinds of explanations that we give. So, you know, what the folks' view of causation is, is another question. <laughs> I didn't engage in that. Okay. But it certainly seems that the folk do have this idea that, yeah, behavior can be caused by the person, by your trait, which is kind of weird, isn't it? Um, or a disposition. So give you some dispositional account of causality that the folk have? I don't know. I think the folk don't really have a very good <laughs> uh, understanding of what they mean by causality. But um, we'll leave that aside. Uh, but then minimally, I say to be a folk psychologist is to, first of all, see that there exist intentional agents, see that there exist agents, you know, so not like the um, um, autistic child who walked across human bodies as if they were rocks on the beach, but understand something that these bodies on the beach are different from rocks. So recognizing ability to sort intentional agents to a certain extent and to fare well in, um, in discriminating, yeah, intentional agents from everything else. That's kind of the minimal requirement for being a folk psychologist. And if this is a minimal requirement for being a folk psychologist, then all of a sudden you get critter psychologists, right? You get non-human animals who are, you know, ape psychologists and squirrel psychologists and whatnot in their, in their own folky ways. Um, because they can draw these distinctions. And then the question, I think, the research questions become much more interesting. What is social cognition for squirrels? What is social cognition for ants? What is social cognition for chimpanzees? Instead of this, this anthropocentric, um, does a chimpanzee do what we do, namely attribute beliefs and desires in order to predict and explain behavior, which was Premack and Woodruff's original, I think that's a quote from their 1978 paper, um, you know, which is problematic for two reasons. It's, anthrop it's anthropocentric, for one, and two, worse, I think it's a wrong descriptive account about what humans generally do in predicting behavior. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you have anything to say maybe about this, you know, so this basic ability to sort agents from non-agents? Um, uh, so what, what is that? Yeah, not so much. I mean, it's there's um, there's been some work that I looked at a while ago. I, did, I, I haven't talked about this at all in the book, but there's been some work by psychologists looking at um, children's lay categorizations, children's folk biology, and so on and so forth. And so I think that's, that's where you go to answer those sorts of questions about what it is that humans are actually looking at when they're able to sort. I don't know about other species. We haven't done folk biology on any other species as far as I know. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that's all I have to say. Um, so, uh, what sorts of, uh, research programs in, in philosophy and in psychology, um, uh, do you see as being motivated by, by your pluralistic view? I mean, clearly the, the, uh, the pre-Mac and Woodruff, 
um, you know, the whole standard folk psychology and the emphasis on beliefs and desires and explaining and predicting led as we as we started with uh you know to this this um this whole false belief task which has become a minor uh you know cottage in- industry within within psychology but you know a very important part of and and in many cases identified with you know that's that's what folk psychology is um so if if you get rid of that folk psychology then you kind of <clears throat> undermine that whole you know that whole um research program that's right um and and so uh which which will not make a lot of people happy but uh, but, they, but maybe they can be happy by doing people. something else <laughs> what? Yeah. i said i do have joseph perner on my side though yeah 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 <laughs> I, I, but, but I, I guess what, what else will we be doing? You know, philosophers yeah. and psychologists. So, yeah. So it's, it is, um, intended, this work is intended to be a game changer for, um, research paradigms in developmental psychology and in, um, and in adult psychology, right? So there's this research that Ian Apperly and Adam Cohen and others are doing on automaticity of belief attributions in humans. In the human adults, right? So Apperly argues and has done a number of empirical tests and looking at response time showing that when predicting behavior and being in a false belief situation and being asked to attend to the beliefs and desires, people are slower than when they don't have to attend to the beliefs and desires. So he thinks that belief attribution is not automatic. Right? This is this is an issue that's um, under ongoing research right now. Um, so... I think that the sort of research being done on human children, adults, other species should be of a different sort because I argue that the reason why we, so let me, I guess I'll back up. I think that there's also an implication, not just for the methodology of the research, but also for the evolutionary stories that have been given um, for the evolution of our mind reading abilities. So I mentioned right at the beginning of uh, Nicholas Humphrey's work on the social intelligence hypothesis, um, emphasizing the predictive power of propositional um, attitude attribution by allowing us greater ability to engage in deceptive behavior. Right, so there's this whole research program in animal cognition about tactical deception behavior that looks to be deceptive, that is functionally deceptive, that is it serves the function of deception but doesn't require belief attribution or, um, or yeah, attribution beliefs. Um, and so I think that Humphreys uh, got things backwards in his story about why we developed beliefs and desires and that sellers got things right a little bit better. Um, and that is that the, um, so consider, consider a world Humphrey's world before we had, um, beliefs and desires robustly, um, belief and desire, the ability to attribute beliefs and desires, I should say. So, now, so this is the, the, the Riley world. Exactly. Riley world. Right. So consider what sort of situations we'd need in order to attribute propositional attitudes to predict behavior. Uh, it's, it's hard to imagine how many and what sort of situations um, you could find that wouldn't be something that would be explicable or predictable in terms of, you know, someone, individual's past behavior, generalization or past behavior or what's normal or um, 
their goals or so on and so forth. And a situation that would require some other sort of um, mechanism for making a prediction is going to look pretty weird, right? It's, it's going to be an anomalous situation. It's going to be one that's out of the ordinary. Now, you see an out-of-the-ordinary behavior or circumstance, and then you think, oh, okay, I'm going to be a genius. I'm going to uh, um, develop this notion of beliefs and desires, attribute them, and then predict behavior. But before you can predict the behavior, you have to generate the beliefs and desires that you're going to attribute. That requires that you construe the situation, right? That you figure out what's going on before you have even a clue what sort of beliefs and desires might be the appropriate ones to ascribe. So what you have to do first is explain what's going on. So explanation is going to be fundamental to um, to any additional predictive power Arilene ancestors would get from mind reading. So I'm really flipping things uh, over here, whereas Humphreys thought that uh, it's prediction that's primary. I say, no, 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 it's explanation that's primary. And so if explanation is kind of the drive that led humans, um, the desire to explain behavior was the drive that led humans to postulate beliefs and desires, then um, we're going to want to do research on beliefs. Uh, uh, our research in theory of mind is going to be have to be based on explanatory paradigms as opposed to predictive paradigms. And let me just say, too, that an evolutionary benefit of explanation, right, the reason why it would be selected for, in contrast to Humphrey's you know, winning out in these competitive Machiavellian situations, um, the, the story I tell is... is um, that it allows for greater social cohesion and adaptation of novel technology by allowing an individual to innovate a new behavior, which is going to be an anomalous action, right? So if you take a meat that was hard won in a hunt and you stick it in a fire, which has only in the past been seen to be this destructive force that burnt down your resources, right? You see someone doing something like that, and instead of running them out of the group for behaving anom anomalously, you try to understand what they're doing. And if you can understand what they're doing, understand their reasons for sticking the meat in the fire or for you know, developing a certain kind of tool or using a certain kind of tool, then that is going to help the community spread um, useful innovations and technology. So is... So is uh... Is is the genius Jones a genius at uh, reinterpreting what's going on? Is that his genius? Um, in a sense, in a sense, he's his, his genius is in explaining and understanding why an individual is doing something that's that's odd, and it's very useful to understand why someone is doing something odd. You know whether they're dangerous or not. If you see them doing something odd, you know whether what they're doing is going to be helpful or harmful. And, and if you know that, then you're in a better position to, you know, thrive as a individual. And if the society comes to understand it, you're in a better position to thrive as a society and reproduce and become a successful species. Um, well, so I think we're, we're almost, um, uh, almost up as far as time goes. Um, 
maybe you can say a word about uh, where you intend to go from here, what you're, what you're working on or where you plan to, um, you know, extend either the work here or, you know, maybe strike off in a completely different direction. I mean, wh what's next? Well, I've got a number of, of related projects going on. Um, Hisashi Nakao and I are writing a paper um, criticizing the natural pedagogy, Chibra and Gargali's theory of um, how children learn, which is very different, they think, from how other animals learn. And some of my evolutionary story is going into to that work to offer an alternative account of the empirical data that they themselves cite. I'm also really interested in in the methodological approaches to studying theory of mind, mind reading, and other species. Like as as I said, I think that the standard predictive tasks have it backwards. We need to engage in explanatory tasks, and so we need to engage and develop some sort of tasks or some sort of study that allows us to identify something like. A emotional expression of puzzlement on behalf of an individual and then some systematic exploratory behavior and then some emotional expression of satisfaction as if the puzzle is resolved, which is kind of, I think, the topography of folk psychological explanation. And I think that largely in order to do that, what we need to do is engage in more field work, more cognitive field work. And if we're going to be focusing on the great apes, then that requires more people in the field with, uh, with great apes observing great apes in their natural environment and to see when they might be explaining things. There's been very little work in the lab on explanation-seeking. Povinelli did a study on whether um, chimpanzees explain, offer explanations in the physical domain. Mm -hmm. he, he says they don't, but... How, how would you measure that? How would you measure whether or not they explain? Well, like I just said, you look for a fo the following pattern uh -huh. that would fit the topography of what I take folk psychological explanation to be okay. an emotional, an affective state of puzzlement, uh, exploratory behavior, and then an affective state where that puzzlement is resolved. So this is um, quite standard in, in, in among psychology and, and some philosophers um, who, who are discussing the nature of of, of um, explanation and, and interest in explanation that it's that it's this human drive. Eric Spitzkobel discusses it, and, uh, Alison Gopnik and, and others as well. So what you don't what I don't have for you is a research experiment um, that we can do in a lab, but I think it's because we need to do the field work first. And so I'm working on some um, some papers on uh, what on methodology in ape cognition research and why we need to go into the field and how we can go into the field without um, being subject to criticisms of um, this is just anecdotalism and so on. This is the, one of the problems Anne and I got, um, one of the criticisms Anne and I got from our a study on pantomime and orangutans. We're like, oh, well, these are just a bunch of anecdotes that you've offered. Right. And part of this is, well, you, you've got, we develop in science, we develop over hypotheses to explain uh, numbers of sets of data. And that's one of the things that that we need to develop. I also find partners in guilt with infant cognition research that we all start as kind of lay experts, not we, but 
uh, infant cognition and children cognition research, start as lay infants, lay experts about infants and rely on all sorts of um, intuitions they have about infants. So, for example, looking time studies, yeah. like, oh, looking longer means that the child is surprised. What study did anyone ever do to verify that? There isn't one, right? That is just people's interpretation of why infants are looking longer. Um, and that's not been acknowledged. I think we need to acknowledge that. Acknowledge that there's an epistemic problem that's parallel in, in the infant research and the ape research, but the bar's been held higher for the ape research than the infant research. So so I'm doing some methodology stuff. I've got a paper with Brian Huss, and um, I've also... Um, I'm working on a paper with Josh Smith, Smith on relationships in uh, uh, between researchers and and subjects, non-human animal subjects, and how that uh, can make a big difference in the results of the studies. Right, as as would one would expect, right? Um, since that's a typical confound in in non-double blind studies mm-hmm. right, with humans. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's this has been fascinating, um, and I wish you luck with all those different projects. <laughs> Thanks, and, Gary. And I would anticipate this, you know, not far from now we'll be might be talking with you again about, you know, from some on some pre- future project. Oh, I, I hope so. I do have another book I'm working on too. That's uh, on the animal mind, it's kind of going over consciousness and communication and stuff like that. So maybe we'll talk again soon on that. I hope. Very Thanks good. so much for the invitation, Carrie. It was it was really fun talking to you. Great. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Kristen Andrews, Associate Professor of Philosophy at York University, about her new book, Can Apes Read Minds?, which is just out from the MIT Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed our podcast, and thank you for listening. <laughs>